I'm Colleen Flanagan. I'm the host of Odd Talk, hashtag Odd Talk, a video chat and podcast series from the Auditorium Theater. We hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. This week's chat is a National Geographic Live series speaker, Brian Scarry, an acclaimed underwater photographer, and he's speaking to Dr. Stephen Kessel from the Shedd Aquarium right here in Chicago. So we appreciate them both taking the time this week and here they are talking about all things underwater. Brian, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today. I'm a big fan of your work. Can you just uh, start by giving us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you first came to work with Marine Life? Yeah, absolutely. I am a National Geographic magazine photographer. I specialize in marine wildlife and ocean ecosystem stories. I fell in love with the sea as a child growing up in New England. I grew up in a little town in Massachusetts and my parents used to take me to the beaches. And right from that beginning, I was fascinated with marine life. I just, you know, used to read the old National Geographic magazines back in those days and watch the old Cousteau documentaries and the idea of swimming with sharks or dolphins or whales or whatever um, really, really spoke to my soul. And in 1998, sort of fast forward, I got my first assignment with Geographic and um, just starting my 28th or 29th story uh, for the magazine and pretty much all about, you know, ocean wildlife and conservation and things like that. So it's been a uh, a heck of a ride, but but a great one. Yeah, so for me, I, I grew up in London, UK, and I didn't, I was always fascinated by the ocean, but I didn't have very good access to it. So it's things like public aquariums and nature documentaries and print media that really inspired me to pursue my dreams and become a marine biologist. Now, underwater photography in general gives people the opportunity to see animals, marine creatures they wouldn't typically encounter. How do you yeah. feel that your photography inspires people to want to protect the oceans? You know, I think what, what I've tried to do in my work is, is essentially tell the story of the researchers' work. Um, I, before I write a proposal, all, all the stories I do are my ideas. Usually before I write that proposal, I've spent many, many months or years sort of doing the research and the research that I gather is largely, you know, research that has been done by people like you that have spent their lives dedicated to understanding these animals. And what I'm trying to do as a, as a storyteller, as a visual storyteller is, is create pictures that will resonate with the viewer or the reader that when somebody you know, maybe that doesn't subscribe to National Geographic magazine, heaven forbid. But if there's somebody that's in the dentist's office or the doctor's office and they just pick it up and they're flipping through and they see a picture that I made of a great white shark or something, that they're going to want to read the caption and then they're going to want to read the story. So I think that it's, it's a never-ending challenge for me to try to look at new ways of making pictures or or create a way that makes those animals have personality or that their life force that's exuding from them is captured um, you know photographically to get people engaged and then if there are issues that you know I need them to know about then I'm I'm trying to give that visual context as well most people are not consuming scientific 
publications. They're not reading the, the, the details of these things. So if I can make a picture that captures somebody's imagination and they want to know more, maybe we can get them to change behavior or do something that will make uh, things better for the ocean or the planet. You know, I mean, that's a lofty sort of yeah. uh, ambition, but, but that's sort of the trajectory that I'm looking at. Yeah, and I'd like to thank you for that because as researchers, diverse audiences are a very important way um, mm. to uh, work and definitely have benefited from your photographs, using them in presentations at conferences oh, around okay. the world as well. Um, many of your, your photographs, in fact. Over your career, you've worked with a very diverse um, a range of marine creatures. You have a very diverse portfolio. Is there one creature that you found either most interesting or most memorable throughout your career? As sort of a genre of species, I have certainly found myself re repeatedly coming back to things like sharks. Um, I saw my very first shark in the wild and photographed the very first shark was a blue shark oh. off of New England back in 1982. Um, and no pun intended, I was hooked, you know, I, <laughs> the, to see this animal that, you know, as a photographer, sharks are a really intoxicating um, subject. You know, they're, they're very symmetrical. They have beautiful lines. Um, they have the dorsal fin and the pectoral fins, and, and they move, um, they, they blend grace and power quite beautifully. They move with elegance through the water, but yet they exude this great confidence. So it really is a lifelong quest to photograph sharks and sort of capture that essence that they exude. And as I you know, progressed from 1982 photographing sharks, I also realized that they were an animal that desperately needed a makeover, that, that sharks, you know, have been given bad press for a very, very long time, long before, you know, modern culture, um, but that they really are, are in trouble. They're being eradicated at alarming numbers, and that if, if, good storytelling can help celebrate their magnificence and maybe help the eradication, then that's a really important thing to do as well. Yeah, that's something you and I have in common in that I think we're both quite passionate about sharks and our work has a particular focus on sharks. You mentioned the blue shark there was your first species you photographed. Could you tell us about some of the other species you photographed? Most recently I, I did four separate stories for National Geographic magazine about some of the top predatory species, if we want to use the term most dangerous species, as a way of helping readers to see that a shark is not as a shark as a shark. You know, I think when we, when we hear about sharks, most people, when they hear the word shark, they have this shadowy, one-dimensional view of an animal that's out there lurking in the ocean, waiting to bite them the minute they put a toe in the water. And we often hear about sharks only when there's a, a public safety concern. So I pitched this notion of doing four separate stories to the magazine as a way of showing that some of these most predatory species are unique, that they are all different, that they occupy different places in the ocean, and they all play valuable roles as 
apex predators in keeping the ocean healthy. Is there a particularly memorable story you could share with us about sharks? One of my most memorable experiences was the very first time I ever saw an oceanic white tip. And this was, was back in 2006. I was doing a different story for National Geographic about sharks of the Bahamas. One of the species that I was hoping to photograph during that coverage was the oceanic white tip. We had gotten a report from some sport fishermen in a place called Cat Island in the central Bahamas who said that they were catching yellowfin tuna on rod and reel and as they were reeling in their fish, they said oceanic white tips were stealing the fish off their line. So based on that fish tail, I charted a boat out of Palm Beach, Florida. We went down for 16 days and in 16 days, we, we only saw one oceanic. Turns out we were there at the wrong time of the year. So we had been out there for, for almost two weeks, hadn't seen anything, wasn't looking very promising. And then it was one afternoon, we had anchored our boat at the edge of a, a deep drop off. And we drifted back on anchor and our stern was sort of hanging over the deep water and we throttled back the engine. And as we throttled back, this dorsal fin broke the surface behind our boat and it had that little splash of white on the dorsal. And I just, my heart was racing. There was the oceanic. Because I was afraid that that shark would swim away, I just, I slid down from the bridge. I put on my wetsuit, I grabbed my camera, I jumped in the water and I was in the water alone for maybe 15 minutes before one of the other guys came in and we didn't put the cage in right away. And that oceanic uh, was maybe 40 meters away or something. I don't know, the visibility was really good. and. The shark turned and saw me and sort of raced right toward me. And, you know, in one hand, I was excited because, wow, I'm going to get a picture of an oceanic white tip. But now, you know, here's this three meter long oceanic that's sort of coming towards me. And I'm a little bit nervous about that, too. But she came in and, and was bouncing her nose. It was a female. She was bouncing her nose off my dome port. And we did this, this 360 pirouette where I was spinning around. And she wasn't trying to bite. She was just very curiously, you know, checking me out. What, what was I? I was something new in the water. So we did this 360 thing, you know, for a while, this little dance. Um, I made a series of pictures. She broke off and then circled around. I got out of the water. We got the cage in the water. And for the next, I don't know, two or three hours, she just very lazily did these big circles around us. And here was this animal that was almost mythical to me. I had never seen one before. She had a dangerous reputation. She couldn't have been more polite. You know, I think of, of all the many wonderful shark experiences I've had, that, that one still stands out as, as something very special. I'm very jealous of that. So I have this poster of Jaws over my left shoulder, and you touched on this before. Yeah. It's one of my favorite films. Also, yeah. one of the reasons that there are these big, this big misconceptions about sharks and why a lot of the public often portray them in a negative light or think about them in a negative light. Why do you think it is though that in general, people seem to be so interested in sharks, but also why are sharks so important to the health of our oceans? I, I will say that, you know, despite the, the negative impact that maybe a movie like Jaws might've had on sharks, and it did, you know, um, I have to say that it still remains one of my favorite movies. It was a great ocean yarn, like Moby Dick or something. It had great script writer, Peter Benchley, who wrote the book. It, it had a great director, Spielberg. It had great acting with Roy Scheider and 
Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. And I also became friends with Peter Benchley oh, wow. late in his life. I spent a month on assignment in Cuba um, with him diving the, the coral reefs in South Cuba. Benchley said a couple of things to me. You know, he said, one, that when he wrote Jaws, he inadvertently tapped into this primal fear that it, humans have of being, you know, eaten and attacked by an animal, particularly an animal that you don't see coming in, in a place where you're not particularly comfortable, like the ocean, where we're, it's an alien environment to some extent for us. He also said that knowing what he knew then, and, and again, this was a few years before he passed away, but he said knowing what he knew at that point in his life, he couldn't have written Jaws because he knew much more about these animals and that, you know, maybe that portrayal was, was not accurate. As to, I think your other question was just about, is it how, how people should understand that sharks are valuable? I think the simple answer, um, Steve, is that sharks are predators. They clean up the, the dead and the dying and the weak, and they help DNA, you know, be robust. Now, I've often described so many of the ocean ecosystems that I see, and I, I think it's applicable anywhere. Um, it, as the as the gears of a finely made Swiss watch, and all the little gears mesh with the bigger gears, and everything turns in its own time and and way. But as you begin to remove those gears, the 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 machine breaks down, and that's what we see in the in the ocean or anywhere in nature. And you can't kill a hundred million apex predators every year and expect the ecosystem to be healthy. And that's what's happening in the ocean. We're killing 100 million sharks or more every year, largely for their fins, for shark fin soup. And we're seeing the breakdown of ecosystems. They do help keep the oceans healthy. And the oceans give us every other breath that we take. So if you like breathing, then maybe you should care about healthy oceans. And if you care about healthy oceans, then predators are a part of that equation. What do you think currently are the biggest threats to the ocean right now and, and marine life? Clearly the, the biggest threat is probably climate, is, is carbon, you know, too much carbon in the, in the atmosphere. The ocean is the greatest carbon sink on earth. You know, we've often heard for years that the rainforest and forests and trees give us oxygen, so we have to preserve that. And that's very true, we do. But the ocean is the greatest carbon sink on earth. It takes in more carbon, it gives us back more oxygen. Every other breath that a human being takes comes from the sea, maybe more. But as we know, it, it, it has limits. And the ocean is like a sponge that has taken in so much carbon that it's fully saturated. And now the chemistry is changing of the ocean. It's becoming acidic, the pH levels are rising and it's creating ocean acidification, which is killing and eroding anything with, with a calcium component to it. And it's affecting prey and ocean temperatures are warming because of that. And it's causing, you know, 50% of the coral reefs to die and little baseline sources of protein like pteropods and copepods are eroding and all of this stuff is happening. So it really is that, that 800 pound gorilla in the room that is affecting everything else. And we don't know the, the domino effect that that will have, but we know it's, it's already being seen and expressed and it's certainly highly damaging. That's in its own category. There are many other um, 
threats to the ocean, overfishing. You know, I did a story for National Geographic several years ago about the, the problems of commercial industrialized overfishing, you know, and it was predicated because I read a paper that was published in the British journal Nature that stated that 90% of the big fish in the ocean have been taken, have vanished in the last 60 years post-World War II because of overfishing, the billfish, the sharks, the tuna. Um, and again, you know, most people don't think about these things and, and the methods that are used to do industrial fishing are very different than other forms of agriculture. So we're putting bottom trawlers out there which are destroying habitat on the bottom. It's indiscriminately catching billions of pounds of other animals that have no commercial value and are thrown back into the sea as trash. We put long lines out there with hundreds of kilometers of, of line and thousands of hooks and we're using gill nets and drift nets and all these other things. So overfishing is a real, real serious problem. Habitat destruction um, from ocean mining and other things that are happening, happening right now. And certainly plastics. You know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have ranked um, plastics as, as a serious threat, but we've learned in recent years that it is a immensely you know, problem, big problem in the ocean, that 18 billion pounds of plastic. I just read an article today that is talking about how ocean is, is essentially breaking down plastics to a, an atomized level, that, that when ocean spray is, is coming forth, that we are ingesting, you know, this atomized plastic, that it's broken down to that molecular level almost, and we're ingesting it into our bodies uh, when, we, when we walk by the seashore. I mean, how hideous is that but the ocean is spewing it back to us you know i mean it's it's almost some cruel sort of irony there but anyway i you know i ultimately believe that the ocean is very resilient and has the ability to restore itself but it is dying a death from a thousand cuts you know and uh it can handle minimal damage and be resilient but when it's assaulted on all fronts um it can no longer do that and as Cousteau said generations ago, you know, if the oceans die, we die. So uh, our, our fate is really in our own hands and, and how, how we steward the, the natural environment and the ocean is a big part of that is going to determine our future. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we, we give all these examples and it seems very dire, but it's important to remember there is hope and we can make a difference. Something at the Shed Aquarium we've been um, supporting lately is the Campaign for Nature petition, which is encouraging governments around the world to protect 30% of their natural spaces by the year 2030. Yes. And people at home can do that very easily. You just go to campaignfornature.org and you sign a petition. It only takes a couple of minutes and we're hoping you know, if there's enough momentum behind it, it can be something that can really make a difference. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I'll talk about a lot of that stuff in my presentation at the Auditorium Theater. I mean, I do get into a lot of these, um, both the problems in the ocean and the solutions. And a big part of it is that sort of community um, engagement where if you gathered a reasonable group of people anywhere in the world and said, every other breath that you take comes from the ocean. I don't care if you live in Chicago or uh, in California or the Sahara Desert. The ocean is important to your life. Uh, most scientists say we should be protecting 40 to 50% of the world's oceans, and today we're only at about 3%. Most people would say, well, well, well why not? Let's, let's do more. Uh, how, you know, that's a no-brainer, right? So I think the first step is getting that education, understanding, um, getting people motivated with easy-to-take steps that 
give them an infrastructure to, to take action and feel empowered. Those are all really, really good things that, that do make a difference. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it just there, you're going to be a speaker at the Auditorium Theatre's National Geographic Live Speaker Series. Uh, it's Ocean Soul will be the one you're speaking at. You gave us a few little teasers there. Are there any other teasers you can give us of what the audience will learn? And what do you like about being a National Geographic Live Speaker? You know, the presentation, Ocean Soul, um, it was the name of a, of a book that I did several years ago, a coffee table book, a monograph of, of my work, kind of a mid-career retrospective. And um, I've, I've modified it uh, over time, this presentation, to include some of my most recent material. But essentially, I take the audience with me on assignment into the ocean and introduce them to this, you know, variety of characters, a cast of characters from sharks to whales to seals. Um, and there is sort of this evolution in my own career in the sense that in the beginning, I just wanted to swim with and photograph cool animals, but I saw these problems occurring in the world's oceans and I felt a sense of uh, responsibility as a journalist and a sense of urgency to tell those stories as well, but then to look for solutions because if there are no solutions, then what's the point? But as we both alluded to, there are solutions and those are the things that I want to bring the audience with me into those stories and show the problems and the solutions and celebrate the ocean. So it's really um, a personal story, but hopefully those stories resonate with people um, on, a, on a personal level because it's, it's my journey. This, this kid that grew up in a little textile mill town in, in New England with a very big dream and um, that it's been realized. And I'm sharing the things that I've learned along the way. Well, Brian, I think we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your passion and experiences with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much, and I very much look forward to coming back to Chicago. Always one of my favorite places, and one of the best things is, you know, after the lecture, being out and, and being able to talk with folks and, and hear their stories. So I look forward to being there soon. So thank you very much. Thank you so much to Brian Scary and Dr. Kessel for joining us this week. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. We will be featuring a At Home with the Auditorium Theater this Sunday at 6 p.m. with Joan Curto. Joan has done so many shows at the Auditorium, everything from Sondheim to Ella and Lena to Billy Strayhorn to Cole Porter. So it's going to be an incredible performance this Sunday at 6 p.m. And then join us for another Odd Talk. We'll be doing these all throughout the summer. Thanks to everyone. Stay safe. Stay healthy. 